Good afternoon and welcome to the 192nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion of food, cooking, and restaurants in the midst of the pandemic with Washington Post food writer Tim Carman. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, December 21st, 2020, there are 1,699,085 deaths globally from the COVID-19 pandemic, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 17,947,644 cases in the United States. There are now a total of 318,602 deaths reported in the U.S. That's up from 311,529 deaths reported on Friday. I'm really pleased to introduce my guest today, Tim Carman. Let me just tell you a little bit about him. Tim is a James Beard award-winning food writer and columnist for the Washington Post. His work has appeared in numerous editions of the best food writing collections. He's also written for Imbibe Magazine, American Scholar, Food Network Magazine, and other publications. Before joining the Post in 2010, he served as food editor and columnist for Washington City Paper. He lives, at, lives in Hyattsville, Maryland with his wife, the writer M. Carrie Allen, and their two dogs, Lucinda and Hans Flufer. Tim Carman, thanks so much for joining us on COVID Calls today. Of course, thanks for asking me to be on. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Uh, I am calling uh, from our home in Hyattsville. And, you know, I have been working on this, I think as you fully well know, since we've had to delay this, I've been working on a story all day. So I have not stepped outside of this house for one second. So I have no idea what's going on outside, which I guess is just what we do during a pandemic. How are things being managed there right now? I mean, I, you're in the greater DC area, so uh, I know they've been trying to have a kind of integrated approach to lockdown and restrictions, but are you seeing some differences in the district compared to where you are there in Maryland? So, you know, in, we're kind of a three jurisdiction area. We've got uh, Washington DC, uh, suburban Maryland and suburban Virginia. And all of them uh, have taken, I would say generally the, the same approach. I mean, like from my perspective, they, they've shut down indoor dining um, and they did, well, DC is gonna be doing that this week but they announced it on Friday that they would shut down indoor dining because the numbers as they are in just about every part of the country are spiking. Uh, the, the seven day rolling average is up over the limit that they want for uh, people to be out and about and doing sort of gatherings of 10 or more people. 
So, you know, they've shut down uh, indoor dining. They shut down museums in the district. Um, they're, they're taking a very cautious approach as the numbers are spiking. I want to, um, there's a lot to talk about, uh, with particularly, you know, the difficulty of doing the work that you do over this really crazy year uh, locked in. But I, I wanted to first just bring some light to an article you published on November 29th. And the headline of the article was, as a food writer with COVID, I worried I'd lose my sense of taste. It turned out to be much worse. And let me just read a line from this. My most immediate worry was whether I'd lose my senses of taste and smell. So this is you're talking about having COVID-19. Uh, common symptoms for those affected with COVID. Some patients have waited months for their olfactory senses and taste buds to return. I had no idea how I'd do my job if I suffered a similar fate. This is, I mean, I've read just about everything I can get my hands on about COVID-19. This is not a perspective that I had saw coming. And of course, it's beautifully written because you're a great writer. Could, could you. you tell us a little bit about um, your experience with the virus and also how you thought about this story? Um, of course. So, you know, when I first thought I had it, um, I think that was the first real struggle that I had with um, just trying to get access to information. And this was uh, this was really telling because you know I I I think it's different in other countries. It's like I had to call my doctor because I was coughing and having a real struggle uh, with energy and breath. And she was like, "Okay, I want you to go to this this little clinic. They will give you a quick turnaround test. Uh, they can do some other tests, some flu tests." and give me some data that I can help you with and determine how to move forward. So, and I'm already tired, like I, I'm, I'm exhausted. I don't really wanna go anywhere. I just wanna like crawl into bed and, you know, suffer through it as best I can. But, you know, I, I dutifully follow my doctor's orders and I go to this clinic and the first person I talked to is like, no, we can't help you. And, you know, there were, there were like reasons why they couldn't, but, you know, they said, you need to go to an emergency room. And I'm like, okay, where, what's the next emergency room? So my wife takes me to this emergency room that's a couple miles away. And they're so small staff that we just have to wait and wait and wait to get this test. And of course, it's not the, the quick turnaround test that gives you results in a couple of hours. It's the two day response. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm so tired and so wanting to be outside of this hospital, which feels, you know, like I'm contributing possibly to spreading it in the hospital. And, you know, I'm also just in this, you know, fluorescent lit, uh, you know, room around people wearing PPP, PPE, and it's just not a very comfortable environment. And I'm just, all I want to do is get out. And, you know, I got no sort of information that day, positive or negative. Um, I just had to go back home and take a bunch of Tylenol, drink a bunch of water and wait two days to know what, what was going on with me. The fear that you had that, well, I should say, I'm glad you're okay. And, <laughs> Thank you. um, and 
of course, sorry you had that experience and that uncertainty is one that really resonates, I think, with a lot of people who many just decided not even to get tested or in, in the early days of the pandemic were told, um, don't bother getting a test and they just treated as if they had it. This uncertainty has been a real feature. But this particular problem of yours, at least early on, when you were worried about the olfactory aspects of it, I mean, that's that's really jarring. Now, as you describe in the piece, that ended up not being your your symptomology. Um, but that's an right. added layer of stress. Um, and it's such a unique insight. I wonder if you might say a little bit more about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, that that was my major fear, as I wrote about it, as you just explained. Like, if if I had lost my sense of taste and smell, I mean, from all the the cases that I've read about, and from friends who have got COVID, I mean, at this point, I know a number of people that have got the disease, and they all say it lingers. Like, you know, unlike the the quick symptoms that happen, you know, the fatigue, the fever, um, the the sense of smell and taste can linger for months. Mm. And when it comes back, it doesn't come back like your your palate was pre-COVID. Things may taste off. You're, you may taste more bitterness. And, you know, for, I mean, for any person, this is terrible, right? You, you want to be able to enjoy your food. That's one of the great pleasures of eating is the, the sure. sensations, the smells, the flavors. I mean, it's bad for anyone. But for my job, I was like, there is no way I can do this job uh, and have this happen to me. Like I, I'm sure the post and my editors would have figured out a way around it. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have just become a, a reporter for a few months until I felt like my palate was back to normal. But you know, it it was a real question mark, and it it, it caused a lot of angst for me. Uh, and I, I think every day I would wake up like, is today the day that I can't taste anything? Yeah. I wonder, could you tell us, um, maybe this is a trade secret and you can't tell us, but is there something you eat or drink that tells you I have my full talents? Well, I think everything. I mean, there's not yeah. one. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, if you can't smell the coffee, like, I, I'm okay. a big coffee buff. And, you know, I have all these tools in the kitchen for making good coffee. And... I can tell the difference between an East African coffee and a Central American coffee, you know, both, well, mostly just by taste, not necessarily by smell. But if I couldn't tell that, I, I would know immediately that things are wrong. You said in the, in the piece at the end, um, after you described this experience, horrible experience, this life and the people with whom we choose to share it are all that we have. And I feel like I have my life back. I can breathe again. And once we're on the other side of the pandemic, I plan to spend as much time as possible occupying the same airspace as the people who helped us through this ordeal. We'll laugh together, eat together, and breathe freely together. I feel like that must be, first of all, um, an experience that everybody can connect with. But I think particularly, I'm sort of curious on your your take on this as a as a food writer. Part of your job is really to convey that experience. I mean, a lot of us go to, we go to, we all go to restaurants all the time. It's one of the normal things that we've all, most of us have had to give up, but most of us don't pay as much attention as you do to that part of life. So when I read that article and I read that last part, you said that 
that really hit me hard because I thought, wow, he's he's a person who's really attuned to what we're missing in that regard. Uh, and this is probably why it's not fun to eat out with food writers sometimes. <laughs> You're paying too much attention to everything that's yeah. going on. <laughs> I, I've had my wife poke me a few times, say, hey, I'm over here. Um, you know, I think the 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 point that I was really getting at at that last paragraph was um, part of the enjoyment of eating out is to be with friends. It's It really is not just about the food on the plate. It is... And I'm sure we've all experienced this. It's it's sitting around a table with really maybe your best friends in the world, um, maybe drinking a little too much, maybe throwing a little caution to the wind, telling a joke. Um, all of this that occurs around a table that really doesn't often happen anywhere else. And this is what I love about eating out with friends. It's like, we get together, we, we go to this one place, we eat well, we drink well, we laugh, we, we, we catch up, we tell the stories. And after all this was, you know, after I started to feel better, I thought about my friends and my loved ones. And because they really helped us through this. My wife got COVID too, as I explained in the essay. So we were both sick together. And people just, we got texts, we got phone calls, we got emails. We got everything. People were dropping food off on our front porch, you know, day after day, multiple deliveries a day, more food than than two people could ever eat. And afterwards, I was just like, these are the people that I love and I want to spend time with. And I would like to do it around a, a dinner table. Maybe other people have different ways of, mm -hmm. of appreciating their friends, but that's really where I love being around my friends. A reminder that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Washington Post food writer Tim Carmen today. Tim, you wrote an obituary of uh, the chef Floyd Cardos early on, back in in March, and I'll post that obituary uh, up on Twitter. Can you say a little bit about Floyd Cardos for people who may not be familiar with him? You know, I think Floyd. That was a real shock because Floyd was a he was a chef that I think maybe a lot of people didn't know about. Uh, he was born in India, but was considered like one of the first uh, chefs to bring Indian flavors into a sort of American fine dining atmosphere. And, you know, he did that with uh, uh, Tabla, this restaurant that's run by Danny Meyer, you know, who's probably arguably the most famous uh, restaurateur in America. And I think his passing really hit people hard. I mean, especially people in my business because he was such a pioneer and he was still relatively young. Um, and I think it was maybe the first time we realized that this was this was a, a disease that doesn't just affect the old, the the infirm, but it affects 
people in their prime who or should be in the prime of their lives. When the pandemic broke out, um, and as they as we moved into March and into April with lockdowns in big cities across America, what were you thinking then about how that impact would look on the restaurant industry? And maybe just tell us a little bit about, you know, now we have nine months going along. What has surprised you about that? What have been the points of resilience and what are the points of just real despair in that industry? Well, I think there was a lot of naivete at the beginning, uh, including myself. I mean, you know, the early lockdown, um, people thought maybe a few weeks and we'd get through this. Like, I remember uh, when the Post decided to close down, they said, you'll be back at, you know, we'll come back at the end of March. And, you know, I think all of us even then realized that was uh, probably too early. Like, you know, why would the pandemic or why would the virus disappear in two weeks? Um, you know, I think there was probably some guidance at the time thinking if we all went into lockdown and it was, you know, fully enforced that we would really decrease the the amount of virus around us. And, you know, as other countries did that went into like serious lockdowns. And, but we didn't, we didn't as a country. And so this lingered and it lingered a long time. And when restaurants first went into lockdown, um, I think they had a similar, a similar thought, you know, we don't know how long this is going to last, uh, but we're going to make the best of it. We're, we're going to, you know, we'll provide for our own. A lot of them immediately went into sort of a pop-up mode where they were giving out free food to folks in the industry that didn't have a safety net, that, you know, didn't have, didn't have access to um, any sort of like unemployment insurance. You know, as, as you, I'm sure as you know, the restaurant industry employs a number of people who are undocumented so they don't have access to, you know, the, the kind of uh, money that would support people during this time. So they were they were immediately pivoting to ways to help uh, these people that had been, you know, propping up the, the restaurant industry for months. Um, and, you know, I think that went on for weeks and weeks. And as, as uh, restaurants realized that this was not going to end soon, I think the panic set in. I mean panic from how do we get through this? What's going to be our, our way to get through it? But I, you know, I think the thing that it's, it's maybe not easy to recognize if you're not in the restaurant industry or write about it or talk to the people in it is that these are incredibly creative uh, folks. Mm. Like they, they pivot. They, it's like, you think about what it takes when something goes wrong in a kitchen and how quickly they have to respond to it. Uh, sure. They did basically the same thing with the pandemic. It's like they found very fast ways to deal with this. They pivoted into uh, creating little uh, shops, little markets where they would sell goods and serve, you know, goods. Uh, it could be pantry items. It could be toiletries. It could be things that people really needed. Uh, they would do, you know, as it went along, they created pop-ups, they created ghost kitchens, you know, which are these sort of carve-outs in the back of the house of the restaurant that would sell, you know, comfort foods, like maybe hamburgers or cheesesteaks or tacos. 
and they would just sell it for takeaway. And they were doing it as a complete 180 from their normal restaurant concept. And they were finding they could make money from this. You know, they were pivoting into takeout, which for some restaurants was not easy. You know, if you're like a fine dining restaurant that is used to doing multi-course menus or tasting menus, suddenly to devise menus that people could take away, that's not an easy thing to do, nor is it easy to convert your entire operation, which has been devoted to full-service restaurants, uh, into something that is basically like a fine dining version of Domino's, you know? And so they've, they, they, they've done all of these things and, and, and they still suffer. You know, uh, I think there are some restaurants that have done decent and by decent, there may be down only 20, 30% from year over, which is still decimating given that, you know, the, the profit margin of a, your average restaurant, you know, good profit margin would be 10%. So to be down 20 to 30%, you are barely hanging on. You are finding creative ways to hang on. You're you're limiting the employees that you hire. You're mm-hmm. you're operating fewer hours. You're you're limiting the menu. You're looking for all sorts of creative ways to to lower your overhead costs. But you know, 8 months, you know, 7 8 months, 9 months into the pandemic, you know, I think the restaurant industry really and, and even earlier on, I think they realized they needed uh, economic help. And that's where a lot of, they've been putting a lot of their eggs in that basket. They, cre- you know, the independent restaurant community created a lobbying group because they didn't have one. Yeah. You know, there was a big national restaurant association, but the small independents felt like they needed to have their own voice in Congress. So they, you know, pulled their resources and went full force to lobby Congress for like direct benefits, direct relief to restaurants. And it failed. I mean, that was what I was writing about today. They didn't get it. And I think they're they're sort of devastated by that, but they did get some things. But, you know, I think it just indicates that they're an industry that's a large industry, employs 11 million people, creates nearly a trillion dollars in revenues in the country. And they felt like they didn't have a place at the table and without a place at the table there, they never were going to get the money that they felt they deserved. And, and without that money, I think many of them feel like they're going to die. Like they just won't make it. And you know, the, the, the death rate is all over the map. You've got people predicting 30%. You've got people predicting 85% of restaurants won't make it through the pandemic. I mean, who knows what it's going to be, but they're clearly right now, they're just waiting for the Biden administration to come in to provide what they hope will be direct relief for the industry. It's such a complicated ecosystem, too, because even if somehow it was safe um, to be back open and and full seating or 50 percent seating or whatever it might be, um, you know, if they're in urban places. They're relying on people being at work. They're relying on sports up and running and the theater district and everything else. So, I mean, your average restaurant in New York or Washington or Atlanta or L.A. is not, you know, some independent um, entity. It's deeply enmeshed in a broader sort of um, economic ecosystem. And there's pain throughout the whole system. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like, 
Um, you know, you reminded me of like the Navy Yard here in Washington, D.C., which is, you know, it's it's an old neighborhood. But with when the ballpark, the Nationals ballpark opened up, it boomed, you know, like condominiums popped up, restaurants popped up, beer gardens popped up. And it was its own ecosystem. And it is just blossomed. And then the pandemic just flattened it. And you know, there's going to be no baseball games played there, and maybe not even next season. You know, depending on what happens. But, um, you know, I think the restaurant industry had to figure out a message to send out to people, and and you know, that message was, if you want us to survive, we need your support. Mm-hmm. And you know, regardless if you're coming down for a Nationals baseball game, uh, come down and get takeout. Support us if you live nearby. You know, use one of the third-party delivery systems to to take food to get food delivered to your home, whatever they could to deliver the message. Like without your support, we're not going to make it. And and I I think they've been fairly successful at that. Let's stay with that for a second because you did mention these these many creative solutions um, with restaurant owners trying to keep as much staff as they can and trying to um, keep chefs and and cooks um, active. The third-party delivery services, um, online marketing, various other things that we've seen. Um, do you think those things will persist beyond this moment? I mean, you were indicating earlier that that's for a lot of restaurants, that's not going to be enough. But for the ones that make it, is this some kind of a transition we're in the middle of here too, in terms of how people do experience what a restaurant is? I think so. I mean, I I think you know all these pivots that restaurants have had to make. Um, they did it for survival, but I think the thing is that they've learned, or maybe I hope that they've learned, is that the the dining public has accepted it. Like if you are a, you know, white tablecloth seafood restaurant that is now selling chicken parm, um, you may have done that because you needed to have revenue and it was a nice comfort food that people want during a pandemic, but you know, if it's successful, why not keep it going? Why not keep this as kind of a separate revenue stream to keep to almost insure against these kinds of unpredictable collapse in revenue? And I and I, I think that's I hope that's going to be the message going forward. Like, don't don't put all your eggs in this basket. Like, really diversify your revenue streams. And delivery will definitely be one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean. I think delivery is a really loaded um, subject for a lot of restaurants. Uh, you know, these third-party delivery systems, they charge up to 30% mm. and plus other fees. I mean, it, it can really lead to some crazy amount of fees for restaurants to pay just to have somebody else deliver their food. And that's just not a workable long-term solution for restaurants. And during the pandemic, you've seen jurisdictions across the country, including Washington, D.C., cap the limits on how much these third-party delivery companies can, can charge restaurants. Like in D.C., it's 15%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but once the pandemic is gone, their rates will just go back up to what they were right. previously. So I think I think what's, you know, one of the solutions, and you start to see this happen already, is like some restaurants are forming their own delivery systems. They realize that this is people 
you know, I think we knew this before the pandemic. I mean, people stay home. You know, they sh they kind of shelter in place during the weekend. They turn on Netflix. They want to have food delivered at home. They don't necessarily want to go out, but they want to have a nice meal even at home. And so I think restaurants, the, the smarter ones are really looking at ways to expand delivery and do it on their own terms, whether that's price or just, you know, making sure that delivery person takes extra care with your food, that you're not one of five restaurants being delivered to that evening and the, the driver doesn't care about any of them. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's, there's going to be some real interesting ideas coming down the pike next year and beyond on how restaurants deal with delivery. Tim, you mentioned the need, the real need for federal assistance. And of course, that applies to workers individually and to business owners as well. I wonder also, though, about the the local, the state and local restrictions, because it seems like it must be awfully hard to keep up with the tangle of restrictions that have been placed on all different kinds of, of venues, restaurants in, in this instance. And I think what must also be confusing, and if it was me, pretty frustrating, that, that certain kinds of businesses seem to be back while others are not, but it's hard to understand epidemiologically why it's safe to get your hair cut, but not safe to be in a restaurant. Yeah, I think that's been a real sticking point for the restaurant industry. I mean, you've seen lawsuits uh, all over the country from you know, suburban Maryland here to Los Angeles. Uh, restaurants just not understanding why they are being singled out for uh, vectors of the coronavirus. And I think, I mean, I think part of this is just that jurisdictions haven't been very good at communicating this information. Um, and it's not exclusive to restaurants, right? But restaurants do present uh, specific issues that help spread the virus. And there's been a lot of studies that, you know, basically prove this. Like you're in a, you're in a closed space. Uh, there may not be good ventilation. There may be. There's air blowing the virus all around. I mean, there was a Korean study just recently that I wrote about that, that showed that the coronavirus can be, uh, you know, float through the air on a, 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 an air conditioning current and infect somebody on the other side of the restaurant in less than five minutes. Wow. You know, so, I mean, restaurants, you're, I mean, you think about the ecosystem of just the dining room. You're, you're sitting there, you have to take your mask off to eat and drink. So, you're not keeping your mask on, which is already a problem. So you, if you are asymptomatic, you might be putting that into the environment. You may be putting, you know, droplets or aerosol into the environment. Uh, the air currents in that restaurant could start spreading that around, depending on what kind of ventilation systems they have. You are talking and maybe talking loudly, which projects things out. And you're also sitting there for a long time. I mean, how long do you spend in a restaurant? I mean, you typically spend at least an hour, right? An hour, maybe two hours, depending on what kind of meal you're having. So you're being exposed to a longer amount of time. All these are risk factors in the spread of the virus. And are they exclusive to restaurants? No, um, but they are risks to that environment. And you know, I think that's a, a large part why you've seen 
shutdowns of restaurants, why you've seen people say you've got to cut off alcohol sales at 10 p.m. because, you know, you get more alcohol in people and their inhibitions just start to disappear. Right. You know, they'll keep their mask off, they'll talk louder, all these things that start spreading the virus around. So, you know, I don't know how well these things, these messages got spread to, to the restaurant owners, but clearly they all factor into the spread of this virus. And typically it'll get worse during the winter months when we're, we're, we are in spaces. And I mean, and the other thing that has been shown is that the virus builds up, you know, it, it spread via aerosol particles as well as droplets, you know, in the droplets, we all thought we were safe if we kept six feet of distance, but now we know that it's aerosolized, that it's, it's in the air for longer than we realized and that it builds up. So if you're in an enclosed space for a long period of time, you may be in a space that has aerosols collecting there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's scary stuff. And, sure. and, you know, as someone who's been through it, I don't, I don't want anyone to catch it. And, but I also don't want restaurants to suffer, which is why, you know, it would be nice to see some relief for these restaurant owners from, I mean, I know local jurisdictions are just tapped out their tax monies. They're not getting the tax receipts they, they used to get. So they don't really have much to offer restaurants, but the federal government could step in and maybe they will later, but, you know, unless they really want to see a widespread, um, I don't know, it's been called an ext- yeah. extinction event that may be a little dramatic, but, you know, a, a, a rearrangement of the restaurant landscape will occur without federal relief. Well, the public health uh, experts I've spoken with over this year are pretty unanimous, too. And the idea that, I mean, we could have avoided a lot of this stress on workers and, and business owners, and in this case, restaurateurs and the people who work in the restaurant industry, by just being realistic about it, pay people not to work. Don't let's, and, and the delivery options and the takeaway options, absolutely. And let that be the creative space and let people keep their craft up and keep them at work as much as possible. But just the realism that it, it, to invite people in, I mean, you just gave a really thoroughgoing and, and really chilling description of why a restaurant, closed restaurant is particularly vulnerable space. Just take that on board and say, we're just not going to do that until we know it's safe for people. Um, but we've yeah. had nothing but obviously we don't have to rehearse all the misdeeds of this administration, but that halting um, and that expectation that this is somehow an individual's responsibility to figure all this out or an individual restaurateur's responsibility to figure out what's safe or not. They're, they're not. Oh, it's it's crazy. It's yeah, crazy. it's crazy. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. It's, it's hard enough to run a business, let yeah. alone to figure out how to keep the public safe from a virus that the knowledge base keeps expanding day by day, week by week. I want to ask you something um, about food, but not about restaurants. And, and particularly early on in the pandemic, I'm sure you were watching and maybe even participating this outpouring of enthusiasm for cooking because yeah. now everybody's home and yeast disappears from the store and, and right. people were anxious about going into supermarkets and they were stocking up with all these foods and getting out the cookbooks and, and then posting their 
people already posted what they ate in restaurants, but now posting their own creations and then gardening. So that I, I wonder what you think about that and maybe this question of whether or not you think people's relationship with food is changing in this time because so many more people are trying things that they wouldn't have before, growing things, eating things, and cooking? Without a doubt. Um, I, I think that's one of, you know, if there's any silver lining to the pandemic, and I'm not saying this is a silver lining, but um, it's that people really have, I think, learned to love to cook again. And although there was backlash against cooking, uh, you know, it, particularly if you've got a family, and you've sure. got to plan that out. I think there we've we've seen in the last month or so, like a number of commentaries of people just said, "I'm I'm done with cooking." Yeah. I was excited at first. I loved it at first. <laughs> I was baking bread. I was yeah. cooking from all my favorite cookbooks. I was buying new cookbooks. I'm over it now, and I get that. It's like you know, if you've got to plan out three two meals, depending on how many times you eat a day you know, seven days a week, it's going to get old real fast. It's, it's interesting to that, that fatigue has set in. And I, I do wonder about that relationship too, that, that, that my just intuition, the, the more time people spend thinking about ingredients, thinking about what they eat, that will also redound to a renewed interest in dining when we can get back to that point. I mean, I think people will have a deeper appreciation of what chefs actually accomplish when they've actually tried to carry some of that off at home. <laughs> I speak for myself. Oh, yeah. No, totally. It's like, you know, I think disaster cooking uh, <laughs> ha has been sort of a, I don't know, a, a thread of it itself during the pandemic. I mean, people that have tried to do something maybe a little outside their comfort zone to push themselves, it doesn't work because, you know, the, it, it takes a lot of practice. I mean, cooking is like any sort of Skill. Yeah, you have to yeah. you have to practice. And, you know, I, even in our own home, um, my wife loves to cook. Uh, I, I love to cook. Uh, we've had a few disasters. You know, uh, I'm afraid we don't post those on, on social media, but uh, they're part of the, the process. And I frankly think, um, you know, disasters and mistakes are really what make you a better cook. And as you suggested earlier it's like once we do go back into restaurants it's like you learn to appreciate all over again the great skill of these chefs that cook for us it's like oh my god look at this refinement look what they did with this you know garnish look what they did with this plating it's like way beyond my skill set and you you know i think i think there will be that appreciation level again disaster cooking has a as a as you said, silver lining is not the word I'm phrase I'm looking for here, but I'll say it anyway. That that there's a really fascinating double sense of that. You know, the cooking we do in the disaster, which also we might take some risks that we wouldn't ordinarily. Um, like you, I won't post that on social media, but a lot of people have as a way to continue right. to build community. Right. I'm I'm always astounded about the ways people are building community in this time, and that's that's one of those. Um, you know, we are moving into a season in which. Um, the economic um, impact of this is once again extremely pronounced, and food insecurity is is real. We're reading that across the country. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of the restaurant industry and in helping to address that crisis? Well, you know, I think 
that gets a little bit outside of my realm of uh, coverage, but the one person I know who is most prominent in that space is someone I've written about a lot, which is Jose Andres. Right. And he, um, he's a force of nature. He, as soon as the pandemic hit, he closed his restaurants and within days uh, turned them into uh, basically like feeding stations for the hungry in, in DC. He was charging, but if you if you could show that you know you were unemployed, you got free food, and even if you did have a job, he was charging fewer prices. But then he did a larger pivot. He turned his nonprofit, World Central Kitchen, you know, which had mostly been focused on sort of natural disasters, you know, going into zones that have been hit by hurricanes, tsunamis. Uh, earthquakes, um, and providing food relief to people that suddenly find themselves with no ways to cook. But he pivoted into a, a, a nationwide and really, and even went overseas with this, uh, connecting with restaurants that found themselves either closed uh, for indoor dining or really knocked back to very limited services. And paid them to produce food that then his his nonprofit would then find ways to deliver uh, to, you know, could be seniors, you know, who were vulnerable and couldn't go outside of their assisted living community because of the risks involved. And he was doing this in, in I think the last number I saw was over 400 cities, which is just remarkable. Um, and I think they served God, I want to say hundreds of millions of meals so far. And that is just, I, I just, I can't imagine how much work, how much logistical work went into making all that happen. But he has been on the forefront of trying to not only feed people that need, that are hungry in this country, but get restaurants back to work and get them some income when they really need the money. Uh, I'm glad you shine some light on Jose Andres' work, and I've just put his website up here, and people can check that out, joseandres.com, to learn more about what he's been doing. We're, we're almost up on time, a discussion here with Tim Carmen today on COVID calls, but um, Tim, I know you see you were filing a, a story today, and um, the holidays is and going into the new year is always a very busy time in the restaurant industry. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the stories that or themes that you think you're going to be really following as we move into 2021? We're entering a new phase of the pandemic with the with the vaccination, the vaccine available, although for most of us it won't be for some months, but you I'm sure you have your eye on some developing things that are going to be moving in this industry through the winter. Well, I think you know, unfortunately, one of the things we'll have to keep an eye on is how this is going to affect the restaurant industry without direct relief. Um, you know, I was I was talking with a, a couple of sources today. Like you think about how long it took to get this relief bill through. And I haven't seen since we've talked. I don't know if Congress has passed it, but, it, you know, the, the text is out there. But this this coronavirus relief package took months to get through. Yeah. both chambers of Congress. And, you know, to get the approval of the White House, to get everyone on the same page. So maybe it won't be as difficult with the next administration. Maybe it will. You know, who knows? But in the meantime, 
we know that you know it's going to be a month yet before the Biden administration comes in. That's one month. It's going to be a few weeks, probably at least, at the very least, until another uh, relief package can be put together. So we're talking two months when restaurants will have to try to survive on their own. And I think one of the unfortunate things is how many will survive? Because this is going to be this is going to be the hardest stretch for restaurants. You know, so many jurisdictions, including New York, uh, Southern California, Washington D.C., closing down indoor dining. They're going to have to rely on takeaway or just close down, go into hibernation, which a lot of them are. And I think you know, in the next couple of months, we'll see who makes it, and that's. That unfortunately will be something a lot of uh, us in the food writing community will be following. I've been talking with Tim Carmen today, a food writer for the Washington Post, uh, and you should read all of his work. And I particularly want people to, uh, if you get a chance, check out his article as a food writer with COVID, I worried I'd lose my sense of taste. It turned out to be much worse. Um, Tim, thanks a million for joining me on COVID calls today, especially under deadline. And um, glad you're healthy. And I hope we get a, a chance to talk again. Scott, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on COVID calls tomorrow. And you can catch COVID calls uh, live 5 p.m. every day Eastern time. Tomorrow, we'll be talking with Ed Young, science writer for The Atlantic. So please do join me for that conversation. Stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.